Funding for Yale Cancer Answers is provided by Smilo Cancer Hospital. Welcome to Yale Cancer Answers with Dr. Anise Chagpar. Yale Cancer Answers features the latest information on cancer care by welcoming oncologists and specialists who are on the forefront of the battle to fight cancer. This week, it's a conversation about the field of classical hematology with Dr. George Goshua. Dr. Goshua is an assistant professor of medicine and hematology at the Yale School of Medicine, where Dr. Chagpar is a professor of surgical oncology. George, maybe we can start off by you telling us a little bit more about yourself and what it is you do. Of course, it would be my pleasure. Um, I am a classical hematologist by training and methodologically I'm trained in decision science. So I'm also a decision scientist and um, on faculty here at the Yale University School of Medicine. I run the Goshua Lab, which is a quantitative decision analytic modeling lab, uh, the first in the country to focus in classical hematology and have the privilege of working with undergraduate students, graduate students at the School of Public Health, the School of Medicine um, and beyond. So many of us have heard about hematology, but what exactly is classical hematology? It it seems to remind me about classical music as opposed to music in general. (laughs) So tell us more about what exactly is classical hematology and how that varies from all other forms of hematology. I'm really glad you asked that question. And that's because the field has really struggled with its name until very recently. Uh, The American Society of Hematology has put forward uh, a campaign to unify the field and call it classical hematology. And the way that it differs from other hematology is that we take care of patients with non-cancerous blood disorders. And the reason why the naming matters in particular is The other names for the field, there's two. There's non-malignant hematology, so non-cancerous, and then benign hematology, which is quite common. And that latter is particularly problematic. That latter term is particularly problematic because, as we probably will discuss here, a lot of our our patients have life-altering diseases that they have to live with, and in some cases, very quick deadly diseases that can be deadly without appropriate treatment. And so for that reason, there has been also a lot of frustration on our patients' part with regards to being labeled as quote-unquote benign. Um, And so for that reason, the field has moved forward now just this year actually with classical hematology. So give us some examples of some of the uh, not malignant uh, hematologic disorders that you treat. Of course. There's a lot of rare diseases in here, but there's also less rare diseases too. And so maybe I'll start with diseases that folks might be more familiar with, even though some of them are still rare. Uh, Sickle cell disease in particular, right? I think a lot of us know individuals who live with sickle cell disease. But then as we move forward, uh, think about all of your autoimmune conditions, so conditions where the immune system is dysregulated, and then that causes derangements in the blood parameters. And so these are diseases in the realm of one to three in a million in terms of incidence. And examples include a paroxysmal nocturnal hemoglobinuria, immune thrombotic thrombocytopenic purpura, uh, chronic immune thrombocytopenia, uh, porphyrias, And then when you think about more common things, venous thromboembolism, 
which affects hundreds of thousands of Americans every year. Iron deficiency anemia, which affects uh, a, a lot of our men and women, and in particular our pregnant women as well in this country. Yeah, so that that's a little bit of a sampling of the more rare and then uh, the more common. That really seems to be a really wide spectrum of of disease. Um, and is the only linkage between all of them that they have to have something to do with blood and blood disorders? I think that's very fair to say, yeah. Uh, it's interesting because, at least in the case of, let's say, autoimmune disorders, sometimes in some of them, uh, the, if you want to think about it, this is how I think about it with my patients when we talk in, uh, together in clinic, you can think about it as the disease spilling over into the blood. And the blood is very sensitive. Um, we have multiple cell lines that can be affected. We have multiple proteins floating in there. And our immune system um, that has been so finely tuned over, over millennia. And any of these parameters can be thrown off. And so I think that it's very fair to say that the commonality here is that there's some underlying issue that's happening to one of or more of those parameters in the blood. Because it also seems that, you know, when you're thinking about things as diverse as um, ITP versus uh, sickle cell anemia versus thromboembolism, um, the treatments are very different. The patient populations are very different. Even the blood cells that are affected are very different. That's exactly correct. There's a uh... A beautiful diversity and heterogeneity within the field. Uh, there are classical hematologists who particularly focus and subspecialize further even within that field. Uh, part of the reason why is because there is such a diversity. Uh, and then there are other uh, classical hematologists who are more generalists as they would be in any specialty and that kind of see the full spectrum. And then if there are complications or there's a particularly high risk situation, uh, in those circumstances, they will often refer uh, to um, a tertiary academic center for further evaluation. Now, Joshua, you know, many of us may be familiar with some of these um, blood disorders that you mentioned, but you also mentioned that you have a laboratory that focuses on quantitative modeling and decision analytics. That seems to be very different from um, what we would normally think of as a hematologist. Tell us more about how those two areas of interest uh, and expertise kind of merged for you. Well, I think it has a lot to do with advocacy. By definition, a lot of our diseases are rare in our field. Um, all across the spectrum, when you combine them all together, the, you really get very significant numbers of individuals. But within each bin, if we want to think about it that way, um, some of the diseases are particularly rare. And it is for that reason that you start to think more and more about decision-making in an area where there are a lot of diseases that are rare and in an area where there are let's say, less prospective randomized uh, clinical trials, perhaps more of a dependence on observational data, you start to think about trying to make decisions with your patients in the clinic 
and in the hospital, in some cases, some of which have very significant consequences or can have very significant consequences on the rest of their lives. We use strong immunosuppressive agents. Uh, we use anticoagulation, blood thinners um, that can predispose people, if used incorrectly, unnecessarily to a risk of bleeding. Um, and so it feels very natural to try and quantitatively try to approach these decisions and put them in a framework that matters to patients, to physicians, to payers, and then try to push the care of patients forward. Um, and decision science is really nice because one of the very wonderful and unique things about it is it's very explicit in its measurement and reporting of uncertainty. And so any decision that we make in our lives, anytime you think of a trade-off, and I think about trade-offs all of the time, <laughs> decision scientists do, but everyone does beyond decision scientists too, right? It doesn't have to apply to medicine. Every time you think of a trade-off and, and the downstream effects thereof, all of that can be captured. And that's the really exciting part because I think we have an opportunity to move the care of these patients forward and help improve the areas of our health system, and there are many <laughs> that need improvement. And so it sounds like, you know, this whole area of decision science uh, would have broad applicability to all fields of medicine, really, where we're balancing, as you say, trade-offs between risks and benefits and how each patient might value each of those things differently Talk a little bit more about kind of the practical examples of, of how you apply decision science um, in your clinical endeavors. Of course. I'll start with an, a little bit of an earlier example, and then I'll work my way forward. So anytime you think of a decision problem, right, and you, and you think of trade-offs, you want to be able to make sure that you have it laid out clearly in front of you. And so I'm going to use a very interesting problem um, because it employs three different strategies in a disease where your platelet counts are low, chronic immune thrombocytopenia. When your platelet counts are low, you're at an increased risk of bleeding. And for that reason, there are treatment options and treatments that we do pursue for individuals who pla whose platelet counts are particularly low because we don't want them to have a bleed, especially if it's a bleed in the head, um, sometimes a bleed in the gut. And it can, the bleeding can really happen anywhere, but there are certain high-risk areas. And so in thinking through that, by the time an individual has, let's say, a diagnosis of immune thrombocytopenia, by the time they reach 12 months, it's defined as chronic. It's done that way because there's a subset of individuals who will never go on to develop chronic immune thrombocytopenia. Their platelet counts will improve sometimes even spontaneously and sometimes with a little bit of treatment and they will no longer need any treatment. But for the vast majority of individuals who do get to the stage of having one year of this disease, now they have a chronic disease. And within, we know the natural history of that disease at that point, it's much less likely that it's going to dissipate. And so often these individuals need treatment. And so the treatment decision here is fascinating. And this is one classic example where a randomized uh, control trial will never 
be done for, for reasons that will become clear in a moment. And that is the fact that our treatment options include three options here, <clears throat> and they include a surgical approach, splenectomy, to try and remove the spleen and remove a site of production of all of these autoantibodies that are in part driving the disease process. And we know that about 60% of individuals will then never have to think or worry about this disease again. At the same time, splenectomy carries the risks of infection that are lifelong, although they are time variant, they change over time. It carries a risk of developing a blood clot over time going forward, and that's also time variant, that changes with time. And separately, anytime you perform surgery, there is a risk of having complications and even deaths from the surgery itself. And so you think about a strategy like that versus thinking about the two other options, which include thrombopoietin receptor agonists, which are these therapies that are taken chronically, either intravenously or by mouth as tablets, and technically have been studied going forward and thinking about using them for a prolonged period of time. So not just a few weeks or a few months with the idea being that you might have to be on this therapy lifelong. There are certain very expensive costs, of course, that accrue with this therapy, both to the health system and to patients. And about a third of patients at a median of two and a half years can come off of therapy and probably be successful staying off, although we don't have enough follow-up time to know for sure. And then separate from that, in the last, the third, is an immunosuppressive agent called rituximab that depletes those cells that produce those troublesome autoantibodies. And you have a response in about 50% of individuals at about a year. And then that response starts to degrade, it starts to decrease, and people will have relapses. And so if you can imagine, you have these three options, but in truth, you can also sequence these options. And if you look at the American Society of Hematology guidelines, there's this inherent struggle with how do you actually rank these options when they have not been compared head to head and who is going to be randomizing people to receive surgery splenectomy versus not. That's not going to happen. But we do have 20 years of follow-up data with this modality, with surgery specifically. And in the clinics, we can see that over the last 20 years, the utilization of surgery has significantly got down in part because of these newer more expensive therapies, not because a splenectomy is not an effective option. And so that is a perfect setup then and framework to start thinking about how do we actually accurately model this? How do we show what the benefit is on a population level? And then can we also make it covariate specific, meaning if you look at the specific comorbidities, i.e. the diseases that the patients have and their likeliness to respond to one of these therapies, can we build that in further than to try and make it an individualized, personalized uh, treatment decision for them? So we'll pick up that conversation. But first, we need to take a short break for a medical minute. Please stay tuned to learn more about classical hematology with my guest, Dr. George Goshua. Funding for Yale Cancer Answers comes from Smilo Cancer Hospital, where their Center for Gastrointestinal Cancers provides patients with gastric cancers a comprehensive multidisciplinary approach to the treatment of their cancer, including clinical trials. SmiloCancerHospital.org. 
Over 230,000 Americans will be diagnosed with lung cancer this year, and in Connecticut alone, there will be over 2,700 new cases. More than 85% of lung cancer diagnoses are related to smoking, and quitting, even after decades of use, can significantly reduce your risk of developing lung cancer. Each day, patients with lung cancer are surviving thanks to increased access to advanced therapies and specialized care. New treatment options and surgical techniques are giving lung cancer survivors more hope than they have ever had before. Clinical trials are currently underway at federally designated comprehensive cancer centers, such as the BATTLE-2 trial at Yale Cancer Center and Smilo Cancer Hospital, to learn if a drug or combination of drugs based on personal biomarkers can help to control non-small cell lung cancer. More information is available at YaleCancerCenter.org. You're listening to Connecticut Public Radio. Welcome back to Yale Cancer Answers. This is Dr. Anise Chagpar, and I'm joined tonight by my guest, Dr. George Goshua. We're talking about the field of classical hematology, and more specifically, Dr. Goshua has a special expertise in decision science. And right before the break, he was starting to tell us about how he brings decision science into the clinic. So, George, maybe you can pick up the conversation where we left it. So, as I understand, um, we were talking about ITP and how there are three different options for treatment, uh, surgical versus non-surgical, and these can be sequenced. We really don't have a lot of clinical trial data, but you were about to tell us um, kind of how you use decision analytics as we come back to this decision of splenectomy versus the medication options, you we know we know what the data looks like, at least observationally, for splenectomy, right? We know its risk profile. Uh, we know that over the last 20 years, we've kind of moved away from it. Uh, and I think in some ways for good reason. Um, but the question then becomes, what is that good reason? The good reason being that it's often assumed, I think, by us as physicians that our patients prefer therapies and therapeutics that are less invasive. And more often than not, that is correct. But sometimes there are circumstances where patients, right, their values and preferences, of course, are paramount. And so sometimes there are circumstances where you actually will have an individual who's interested in pursuing splenectomy in this particular context, but will not because of the counseling that they receive. And so we wanted to take a a very objective look at this and to model what would your life look like, you know, if you can simulate it thousands of times making one decision or another decision or yet another decision. And that is the beauty of decision analytic modeling. It allows us to quantify that. It allows us to run those simulations to make sure that we have addressed all of the concerns. And so putting that all together, what we showed was that utilizing splenectomy early is absolutely fine. And in fact, the quality adjusted life years that you accrue, if you as the patient make a decision to pursue splenectomy, at least on a population level, that is just as fine of a decision as pursuing the medication therapies. And so for those individuals for whom it makes sense, they shouldn't be dissuaded for pursuing a therapy that is going to be just as effective for them. If the two options are equivalent, patients may still be left in this decisional conundrum. 
And so how do you help patients with that? Yes. And that drives back to one approach that my lab takes is to make sure that whenever we build models that try to approximate real life, and that's what they are, right? They're only approximations. We always take the most conservative assumptions. And so, for example, in that particular study, although we show equivalence where in the past, the thought has been, or the clinical practice has been to pursue the medication therapy. Although we show equivalence, in fact, if you use assumptions that are more realistic, i.e. do not downplay the benefits of splenectomy and do not over-exaggerate the risks, which is what we did in this model, then you'll find that the splenectomy option becomes a little bit more favorable in certain circumstances. But separate from that, because we're talking on a population level, and the really exciting bit is that we can take that and then we can personalize it, right? Because this is on a population level. This is all comers. If you're a 30-year-old woman versus if you're a 55-year-old man, there's a very real difference in your actual responses. A 30-year-old woman will have a much better outcome typically with splenectomy than a 55-year-old man as compared to the medication therapies. And so the next steps for that particular question are to personalize and to see, not just to see, but to actually give an opportunity for physicians, right, through an easy visual interface, essentially, where they can plug in the parameters of importance like age and gender and other diseases that may be at play that we know affect these risks, to then, in their clinic, calculate and simulate what would actually happen the vast majority of the time and to be able to provide those estimates to patients so they can make a decision that makes the most sense for them. And so, you know, that sounds, you know, really quite wonderful if you're able to uh, take all of the data, put it into an analytic model that can be personalized so that people can say, okay, um, tell me what's best for me, and you can put in all of those parameters. That sounds really quite wonderful. Has that found its way into the clinic uh, in hematology specifically? But then if it has, um, where are we going in terms of taking that into the clinic for many, many, many other diseases where patients still struggle with, well, what should I do? Should I, if I have breast cancer, should I have a lumpectomy? Should I have a mastectomy? Should I do one side? Should I do both sides? I mean, I can <laughs> see where um, this kind of modeling would be helpful uh, across diseases. Yes, and it has been utilized in other disease areas. Not yet in classical hematology, but I'm really glad you brought up the example of breast cancer. The United States Preventative Services Task Force, the recommendation is actually based on microsimulation modeling, which is a different kind of decision analytic modeling uh, for patients with breast cancer. Uh, Microsimulations have also been employed um, to inform the care of patients with lung cancer and lung cancer screening. So there's a very real opportunity here to be able to apply it to a field where we have diseases that are also rare and also quite consequential for our patients. And that's the exciting part of it too. And the exciting bit specifically is the fact that the decision science methodologists 
have been pushing that field forward for many decades now. And the opportunity to then take the clinical knowledge that, that we've accumulated as physicians and to be able to try and fuse those areas of expertise, that is what drove me to this point. Because it gives me a unique opportunity to work with some of the brightest minds in decision science and some of the brightest minds in clinical medicine to try and conceptualize these problems and capture them in a way that actually can inform one, health policy, and then second, uh, individualized treatment decisions for patients. So a couple of questions on that. So the first question is, why hasn't it found its way into clinical practice in clinical hematology? I mean, at the outset, you made a very nice case for using decision science in classical hematology, that being that we don't have large randomized control trials for what are you know, often rare diseases, one would think that this would be an ideal platform for classical hematology. So why hasn't it found its way into clinical practice yet? I think two reasons, probably. Uh, one, uh, decision science methodologically is, I, I've been told a few times, one of the most niche, if not the most niche um, area, uh, 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 speaking methodologically, there's just not a lot of decision scientists in this country. Um, there's a little bit of a hub on the West Coast, a little bit in the Midwest, and one here in the Northeast. And that's kind of mostly it. Uh, and all of them um, are, at the very least, of course, um, uh, doctors of philosophy, so PhDs. Uh, but MDs and MD PhDs and MDs who do decision science are far and few in between in the United States specifically. This is different in Europe and different in Canada. And that ties into point number two, which is that in general, you know, the decision science umbrella includes so many different aspects where you can do simulations where you can weigh decisions. But if you want to completely separate from that, you can also layer in costs and I think that is, um, especially here in the United States, when you start to talk about those two concepts together, costs and effectiveness, right? So cost effectiveness, especially during uh, the period here in the mid 2000s and the early 2010s with the Affordable Care Act and this conversation about who makes decisions about your health care who makes decisions about how much is too expensive to pay, right? Th these are discussions uh, that in some ways shaped and morphed the discussion unwillingly in a way about, about decision analytics. But we're in a period where now uh, our president has signed into law, right, um, an act that will go forward in 2026 and give CMS an opportunity to start negotiating drug prices. So I think reason number two has to do with this thorny issue of costs and who makes those decisions. The reality is at the end of the day, cost also matters, right? And we need to be able to account for it. Now, whether we make decisions on it or not is totally up to us. Yeah, I mean, one would think that decision analytics plays such a key role in terms of actually grounding the cost decision um, in data 
and on risks at each decision point along the way. You mentioned that you're interested in public policy and using decision analytics to guide public policy, and at the same time, individualize care. Can you talk a little bit uh, in our last minute about how those two are either at odds or how they come together? Well, I think they can fuse beautifully together, but methodologically, they need to stay separate. Um, There are definitely ways that we can help individuals personalize their treatments. And one of the avenues that we're going to expand out into is looking at -at out-of-pocket costs in this realm, which hasn't really been done a lot at all. Um, And then separate from that, keep the health system policy issues separate. Um, And the stakeholders are very different. So you need to be able to cater to those specific stakeholders. And I think we're we're going to be able to do both. Dr. George Gashua is an assistant professor of medicine in hematology at the Yale School of Medicine. If you have questions, the address is canceranswers at yale.edu, and past editions of the program are available in audio and written form at yalecancercenter.org. We hope you'll join us next week to learn more about the fight against cancer here on Connecticut Public Radio. Funding for Yale Cancer Answers is provided by Smilo Cancer Hospital.